Uh, we're going to begin uh, with Scripture, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4, and then Genesis 32, just a few verses, 24 to 30. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And then chapter 32, um, verses 24 to 30. This is Jacob on the way back to the promised land. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered, then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, yesterday we were thinking about the, the world being birthed in divine love. And we also saw that it is a world that divine love has pursued right from the beginning. In the midst of darkness and despair, in the midst of decay and devastation, from the first moment that evil touched our human hearts, all the way down to this present moment, God has been pursuing his creation, at times bringing the very wicked to justice, for sure, but more remarkably and more consistently, God has been seeking to turn evil to good. And our story has told us so far, God has been displaying enormous patience and love toward his creation and going on blessing it in spite of our own best efforts to bring it to ruin. That's how, I, that's how I read the story. It's a great story. It's a true story. We saw an especially wonderful picture of God's determination to bless uh, yesterday um, when we uh, spoke about the flood. God brings the great flood on creation because... The world has indeed sunk into the most terrible uh, wickedness. But God promises in Genesis chapter 8, you'll remember, that he will never again curse the ground because of humans. He will never again destroy all living creatures, even though human beings are still wicked after the flood. We saw that. So nothing has changed in the human heart. Nevertheless, God's blessing will perpetually rest upon creation until the end of time. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Uh, nor have they ever ceased. Here we are today. And in Genesis 9, that promise is confirmed with a covenant, a solemn agreement. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, God says to Noah, and with every living creature on earth. And so we read that God so loves the world that he enters into solemn covenant with all of it. All of it. You and all living creatures of every kind Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Uh, this is the first covenant mentioned in Scripture. 
is incredibly important because it answers a fundamental question raised by the Genesis story itself. The question is, is God still committed to the entirety of the world that he has made, even though it has been compromised by evil? It's a fundamental question. Now, really, on the answer to that question, a lot of other things follow. Um, I mean, there is a certain view of our human calling in this fallen world that is, is rather akin to this picture of the story of the ark. We sail around in the ark, and we sing... I, I, choruses, I guess, and then every so often we, we hit dry land and we, we put the, you know, the, the plank down, we run out, we grab a few pagans, and we drag them back into the ark, and then we sail off again. Uh, and uh, so, so basically it's about like being the church, being the church is like you know, the thing, as it were, and really God's purpose is to save everybody out of the world. God has no commitment any longer, apparently, to the world he has made, only to human beings, apparently, on this view. Uh, well, I don't believe that that is the biblical view. Um, I think this whole left-behind business is fundamentally wrong. I mean, we've made some jokes about it, so very funny they were too, but it's deadly serious, right? Our whole understanding of what God is doing in the world and what the church is and what we're for and what we're to do is very much bound up with whether we read this passage well or not, the very one we're dealing with here. So is God actually committed to the entirety of the world that God has made, even though it has been compromised by evil? And the biblical answer to that, I believe, is yes. God is still committed to the entirety of the world he has made. God is still committed to blessing all of it, not just human beings, not just saved human beings. And this is also mightily affirmed by another close-by Genesis passage that we read together just a moment ago, which also contains a divine promise. This time the promise is made to Abraham, not to Noah. But it has still very large-scale ramifications I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, God promises Abraham. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's a stacked full of blessing language. Did you notice how many times that, that word is used here? So here is the blessing of God at work in the world once again. Uh, Genesis 1 first told us that God blessed human beings and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 9, when that question arises, have things changed after the flood, we find God blessing Noah and his sons and saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Nothing has changed, right? The human vocation remains and now, in Genesis 12, uh, Abraham and Sarah particularly are to be fruitful and to increase in number and fill one particular land, one particular part of the earth, the land of Canaan. Not just, notice, not just so that they will know God's blessing, but so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through them. So... Uh, the people of God are not called out for themselves. That's the point, yes? The people of God are called out to participate in the grand project of God blessing the whole of creation. And Genesis 15 has another solemn covenant that confirms this promise. So what we see in Genesis 9 and Genesis 12 is that to the covenant with all living creatures in Genesis 9... God adds in Genesis 12 a covenant with Abraham which has implications for all human beings. So you see how this works? All creatures, the biggest picture, covenant with all creatures, now a covenant with all human creatures. We've moved in one level, as it were. 
Abraham's family is to be blessed by God so that the nations will be blessed by God. And Abraham is given a land in which this blessing works out so that Abraham may do in a particular place what all human beings are called to do on the whole earth. And those of you who know a bit of Hebrew will know that the word for land and the word for earth is the same word, right? Eretz. So we're talking about a microcosm in relation to the big picture, right? What happens in the land is a kind of first fruits of what is supposed to be happening in the whole of the earth. So the multiplication of Abraham's descendants in particular into a great nation is a microcosm of the larger human uh, reality. And the the language helps to uh, reinforce that. So what's going on here? What's going on is that one fragment of the human race is taken up in this part of Scripture, and this fragment, this family, is given a promise of land and nationhood so that God's big plan may go forward, the big plan to bless everything. So what's this passage about in the simplest terms? This passage is about mission. That's what this passage is about. The people of God, the descendants of Abraham, are called out by God for mission, and the mission is cosmic in its implications. Right? The mission, notice, is not just that other people should come to know Yahweh. The mission is that God's blessing would be known in all the earth. That's the big picture. God so loved the world, God so loves the world. That's exactly right. That's exactly what's going on in this story. So we discover then that this is a story that is still going somewhere. The creation story is still going somewhere. It's not plan B in relation to plan A, as it were. It's still plan A. It's just that a few complications have arisen. Uh, and those need to be addressed, right? But it's not that God was caught off guard, you know, one day, as it were, which would, would, would be a ridiculous idea, right? So there was this plan A, but darn it, you know, it just didn't work out. So now we're doing plan B, which is redemption and Jesus and stuff. No, that's, that can't possibly be right. We talk that way, don't we, sometimes? But that can't possibly be right. And here I think we come to a primary key that we need for the faithful preaching of Genesis 12 through 50 and indeed the preaching of the entirety of the remainder of the Pentateuch. If we're going to preach this in our context, here's the key, I think. The presence of evil in the world notwithstanding, there is hope in the biblical story from the very beginning that God will still do what God was always going to do. That the whole creation project has not been abandoned and replaced with an evangelism project, if I can put it that way, right? That the one is actually related to the other. This in relation to that. God is still doing in the world and with the world what God set out to do in the first place, which was to take us all somewhere, to take creation somewhere, yes? It was always a journey. This idea that it was a static thing, you know, and movement and change only became necessary because of the fall, I don't think that's right. That's very Greek, if I may say so. It's not very Hebrew. This idea of static perfections that we accidentally fall away from and have to return to. No, I don't believe so. I think the story in the Bible is very much one of which God was always on a journey with creation going somewhere. And sin complicates that but it doesn't fundamentally change the nature of the project. And the promise to Abraham remains the great focal point of this hope all the way through the remainder of the book of Genesis and throughout the Pentateuch and beyond. Uh, So the promise is is the heart of the matter. I think if we're, we're going to preach the Pentateuch coherently, we have to understand it's all about this promise in relation to the blessing of creation, and it explores essentially how this promise survives against all the odds because it is the promise of God, and God is not subject to the odds. That's really, I think, what this whole story is about. 
And so the promise to Abraham survives somehow the problem of childlessness. You can't be fruitful in multiplying if there's a basic problem with, with, with the childbearing aspect, right? So consider how many times that problem arises, right? That's a theme. Why is it a theme? Because it's a fundamental threat to the promise, right? How is that, how's the promise going to work out if that problem can't be overcome? So that's part of it. The promise to Abraham survives famine, have you noticed how many times there are stories about famine, lack of food? Well, I mean, you can't, you, the promise cannot you know, come true if people are not alive at the most basic level. So famine is a huge threat to the promise. You can't easily do mission if you're dead. <laughs> the promise survives, in Abraham's case, the danger to Sarah from powerful men like the Pharaoh of Egypt. That's a threat. How can Abraham and Sarah be doing this business of mission for God if, in fact, Sarah is under threat from, you know, and all those, uh, what we would call back in the UK, shenanigans. You know that word? It's a nice Irish word. All those shenanigans uh, with threats to Sarah. Abraham puts Sarah, really, and other people in danger, essentially, you remember, by this pretense that she's only his sister and not his wife. And most fundamentally, and we, we touched on this uh, yesterday, most fundamentally, the promise to Abraham in the Pentateuch survives the threat posed by the all-too-often-poor moral character of the chosen people themselves. That's the fundamental threat, actually, probably. It's the one that's most often explored, I think. These are all about how can this promise possibly survive? It seems astonishingly fragile from one point of view. So the promise to Abraham survives. The promise to the whole world, therefore, survives. Why does it survive? Because it is the promise of God. And the covenant associated with the promise to confirm it, that covenant is the covenant of God. And in the end, it all works out because God is utterly determined to see his creation flourish. All of it. That's the heart of the matter. And of course, right at the heart of the heart of the matter, therefore, is this truth that we explored yesterday, that God loves the world. That's, this is how, what it begins to look like. Uh, the creation story, the covenant with Noah, uh, they all tell us already that God loves the world. But uh, at, at, the, at the kind of very center of the thing is, is this covenantal idea with Abraham that therefore God loves all people. God loves you and God loves me. And it's gloriously stated in John 3.16, but of course John 3.16 is only summarizing really what is already the entirety of the scriptural story all the way through. Right? That's what the story of Abraham brings to the table, as it were. Uh, so I'm going to focus on the story of Abraham for a little while, and then we're going to focus on the story of Jacob, because I have to choose to focus somewhere in a, in a fairly brief uh, session. Uh, and the reason I'm going to focus on these two is really because I think they speak particularly powerfully into our own situations. So we're all bound up in this same story, right? We are ourselves the children of Abraham, we're told. That's how this works out in the end. The Gentiles are grafted in, as Paul says. So we are these same people. The church is called to the same missional participation with God in blessing the whole cosmos, that's what we're about, it seems to me. That's what we're called to do. We also are not called for ourselves, I believe. We're called into the mission of God. Uh, fundamentally, that's who we are. And, of course, as we engage in that, we too face all sorts of challenges to the promise, really. And so this is where Abraham and Jacob actually speak to us because they tell us about how God works with us as well as with them in the midst of this. Uh, so we're getting to the character of the story we all find ourselves in. What kind of story is this? 
What kind of story is, is the story that all of your parishioners, the folks in your churches, find themselves in? So, let's think about Abraham along these lines, because Abraham is, in many ways, an astonishing person. Uh, there's a reason why he's held up as a paradigm of trust in Scripture, because here is this astonishing, really fragile promise, and for the most part, Abraham manages to hold on to it. That's the astonishing thing. So consider Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. But that's a big ask. We meet Abraham already on the move, actually. He's been on the move for some time. He travels all the way from Mesopotamia into northern Syria. In Genesis 12, he's on the move again, leaving his new home in Syria for an even newer one in Canaan, a land he has never visited before, he knows virtually nothing about, And it's worth pausing to imagine how he felt about that. Just a bit of empathetic connection here. It's worth pausing, and this is important, also to imagine how Sarah felt about that. Um, You know, we, we can sometimes, I think, be in our preaching, accidentally we forget to look at all the characters. So we talk about Abraham. Well, yeah, well, Sarah was there too, and she's kind of important. Okay, so, you know, let's be careful about that. Just because we have lists of heroes of the faith, you know, they're not exhaustive accounts. We have to be very, very careful. How did they feel about this? Moving is not necessarily a very appealing thing to do. Uh, It can be a very stressful thing, in fact, to do. Uh, I personally have no desire whatsoever ever to do it again. Um... And moving because you believe that God is telling you to move is not necessarily a very appealing thing either. Um, I mean, we we talk a good spiritual talk about it, you know, but it can be hard. It can be a rather joyless thing, a rather fearful thing, uh, driven by duty more than by delight, really. It can be very hard on spouses and children, particularly if they do not share a deep sense that God has told them to move, but they're responding to a spouse who's saying, yeah, but God has told us to move, as it were, that can be very, very hard. And I have met some very resentful people through the years, uh, trailing along in the baggage of other folks who say that God has called them here and there, but not everyone's on board, as it were. So it's, it's one thing simply to move... It's another thing to move, trusting that God's purpose in moving us is indeed to bless. Really trusting in that. Because if we really are able to trust in that, then it's possible, I think, to face our fears. Then it's possible to face our resentment. And then it's possible to find joy, even in the midst of pain. It all comes down to who we think God is and what God is doing in the world. Is God fundamentally good? Is God fundamentally in the business of blessing? Blessing the world and blessing you and me as we join in in this great project. So I imagine that God's words to Abraham made a great difference to Abraham and his family to the extent that they were able to trust. They didn't know where they were heading yet, not precisely, They didn't know precisely what lay ahead. But clearly, they trusted that what they would find would be good. I think we can at least say that. That at some level, they trusted, they were able to trust that what they would find would be good. They trusted that God was good, not just in theory, but in reality. So with very little evidence to go on, in terms of the evidence of their senses, they trust that they will find blessing in Palestine and that they will be a blessing to many other people. I think the same choices face each of us in our journeys or journey. Who is God? Which story am I in? Do I trust that God is for me and not against me in my journey? Do I really believe that God is still 
in the business, fundamentally, of looking for ways to bless his creation? Is that God's nature? Uh, if we're able to, to believe that, it will be a lot easier to join in and participate in the great plan. So right from the beginning, we see Abraham's trust. And then consider what it must have been like for Abraham and Sarah to live in the promised land day by day and hour by hour with the minutes ticking by and frankly, nothing much happening. Um, one of the great merits of reading whole chunks of Scripture is you get a sense of the thing much more than you do if you just read verses, right? Try reading Genesis 12 to 22 at one go once, and you will discover that basically the story is time passed, and not much happened, really. Genesis chapter 13 Abraham is living in southern Palestine. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, says God. If anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Fantastic promise, but Abraham and Sarah do not yet have one child, much less offspring like the dust of the earth. So Abraham in the promised land in chapter 13, no son. Genesis 14, Abraham leads a military operation back outside the land of Canaan. Very interesting, but no son. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham talks to God about the rather obvious elephant in the room. <laughs> you, O Lord, have given me no children. Chapter 15, verse 3. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, says God, so shall your offspring be. Fabulous. But the chapter ends, and there's no son. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Abraham, now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Thank you very much. We had noticed that. <laughs> so husband and wife decide to take a shortcut, you remember, with the help of the concubine Hagar. Ishmael is born, but Abraham and Sarah still do not have the natural child that was promised. They have the wrong son. Genesis 17, I will bless Sarah and give you a son by her. And Abraham fell face down and he laughed. Well, you would. He's having a hard time believing it, I think. And we can sympathize. I mean, huge sacrifices to get where they've got to. Huge sacrifices based on gigantic promises. And honestly, nothing much is happening. Sarah has a good laugh about it too in chapter 18. Uh, by the way, no son. Uh, Genesis 19, the storyline, no son. Uh, Genesis 20, uh, no son. And you begin to feel why it is so crucial for Abraham and Sarah to possess a deep conviction about God's goodness. The reason they need a deep conviction about God's goodness is because nothing has happened yet to show, actually, that God is good for his promises. Nothing has yet happened. It's not always clear for us either in our experience that God is for us. There are things that happen that could easily be interpreted in the opposite direction, very easily. Many of our contemporaries do. People give up their faith because their experience overwhelms this, this belief that they once possessed. There are times in life's journey when reality can seem quite otherwise. And trust is required of us as it was of them. Conviction is required of us. Faith is required of us. Faith in God's promises, which, if we're honest, can often seem fragile and impossible in the current moment when experience cannot sustain us. And this is part of the problem with experientially based faith. I mean, we evangelicals rightly emphasize the importance of experience for sure, right? It should be real, our faith. It ought to be relational. But there are times, I believe, when experience cannot do it. And unless we're, we have other resources than merely experience, we're going to be in deep doo-doo, frankly. We all encounter such times. Abraham certainly encountered these times. 
And preeminent is the event that's coming next. Right after chapter 21, where at last Sarah became pregnant and bore a son. There you go. God blesses those who wait on him. God delivers in his promises. You just need to have faith. Things will work out. Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son. I know. I know. Absolutely. Can you imagine? Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I mean, gosh. All that waiting around for implausible promises to come true. All that trusting in the goodness of God, who has not yet delivered. And then for a moment it seems that he delivers, and the next moment it looks as if he wants to take it away. Surely just too much to bear. Surely the last straw. One more journey God calls Abraham to make. But this is a journey, it looks like, to the end of the promise. A journey to the end of all hope, actually. Because Abraham, you see, does not know that this is only a test. We know it's a test because we are told so. We are let in the secret. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So we know. But Abraham doesn't. We are rather privileged as readers of this story to know what's going on. It's like the book of Job, actually. It's exactly like the book of Job, where the reader is given insight into what's happening and why Job is suffering, but Job never finds out. He doesn't find out what's going on. All Abraham knows here is that God has once again spoken, addressing him by name, and he responds as he characteristically does, here I am, available, ready to do your bidding, O God. What is that bidding? Well, take Isaac to the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. And, and I find myself asking, you know, Tell me now, Abraham, that God loves the world. Tell me now that God loves all the nations, all human beings. Tell me now that God is good, when in the very command of God, something wicked appears to be in mind. Can you really still trust God when something so starkly contradictory to God's character appears to be in the world? Not least of which, by the way, is that later the Israelites are explicitly told to avoid child sacrifice and put all that away as the customs of the nations. And so here I am in this imaginary dialogue with Abraham, and one of the things I want to ask him about is I want to say, hang on, wait a minute, in chapter 18, with Sodom and Gomorrah, you argued with God about stuff like this. Will not the judge of the earth do right, you asked? It was a good question. Where's that question now? In chapter 22, he doesn't argue with God. In chapter 22, he obeys God. By the way, where is Sarah in this story? The rabbis used to discuss this. They used to suggest things like they left early in the morning while Sarah was still asleep because they knew darn well there was going to be trouble. Uh, Sarah's not there. So we know the outcome, of course, happily. God provides the sacrifice. Isaac is spared. Now I know that you fear God, says God through his angel. Because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And that, of course, brings us eventually to the point. Ultimately, the point becomes clearer. The point has not been to test Abraham's willingness to sacrifice. The point has been to test Abraham's willingness not to hold on to things. That's what it turns out is the case. Not to hold on to people in particular. There was always a danger in this promise delayed and the son thing. There was always a danger of idolatry. There was always a danger that this precious 
son eventually born would actually become a problem in a way in terms of Abraham's faithfulness to God. I think the whole point of the exercise is to see if Abraham will keep things from God. That's what the text suggests. And it turns out that Abraham does not keep things, not even precious persons, from God. And it turns out in the end, what we kind of suspected all along, that God does not require such a thing after all. So all of this becomes clear eventually, but of course it's only eventually, and we have to live in the meantime, like him. So I, I, it would be a mistake, I think, to preach this passage as, as if it was all cut and dried and nobody needs to worry too much, as it were. I think we need to live in the middle of this story, not at the end of it, or at least not just at the end of it, because it's in the middle of it, actually, that's the crucible, really, where faith is being tested and formed. It's only in the end that such things become clear. It's not clear at the beginning. It's not clear in the middle of this story that God really is good. That God really is love. It's only clear in the end. It's only clear at the end of the book of Job. I would say it's only clear at the end for us too. It seems to me there are loose ends in all of our lives which I very much doubt actually will ever be tied up this side of the eschaton. Things that don't fit. Things that bother us. Things that worry us. And the question is always going to be, what are we going to do with that stuff? How are we going to handle that stuff in the here and now? And Abraham gives us, I think, a model for that. Not the only one in Scripture, but certainly, certainly he reflects the way our own lives are all too often Sometimes, often perhaps, wonderfully and obviously blessed, but trials inevitably come our way, and the question is, how are we going to respond? Shall we respond as those still convinced by the goodness of God and God's fundamental determination to bless? So that's Abraham. Uh, it's a, a rich, rich story, which is about life. It's about us, not just about him. God so loves the world. God so loves all of its people. The story of Abraham proclaims this message in one way. It sets the framework for understanding our own lives, especially when they're not going well. The story of Jacob proclaims the same message, but in a different way. I want to illustrate the difference of the way with reference to the first of the Star Wars movies. Um, the first, if you remember, is the fourth. It's very confusing. But <laughs> um, Our family uh, watched this very old movie now. I, I remember in the theaters uh, when I first saw that movie, it was like state-of-the-art, eh? It was like mind-blowing. And now you realize there was a guy turning a little thing and it was the... <laughs> It was only one step above the old Star Trek series, really, where the, the guy with the black glove, you know, was driving the spaceship around. Um, but it was kind of cool going back there with my adult kids now who weren't really familiar with it. So we went back and we watched the first of the Star Wars movies, all three, in fact, in preparation for the new one that was coming out, uh, as a kind of Lenten preparation for the new one. Um, <laughs> Uh, the, 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 the new Star Wars movie, which I have taken to referring to as uh, Star Wars Deja Vu. Uh, I wonder, by the way, if you fully grasp the trouble we are in with respect to Star Wars movies. Um, the Star Wars cosmology is one of endless dualism. The dark side of the Force will always be with us into eternity, and it doesn't matter how many times you destroy the Death Star. The Empire will always strike back. So here's the logic of that. Star Wars movies will never go away. It's a disturbing thought. Anyway, those of you who still care uh, may remember the opening scenes of the original movie where... Princess Leia's star cruiser, the Tantive IV, 
is being boarded by the imperial forces and there's panic everywhere, coming straight towards the camera, we meet for the first time CP3O and R2D2 accompanied by another silver droid. You see the other silver droid just behind there? I've tried to pick him out with that rather amateurish arrow. CP3O and R2D2 keep on coming straight towards us, toward the camera, entering their destiny as major characters in the story. The silver droid turns through a door on the right and is never seen again. This is the few frames later. He's gone. And since Steven Spielberg is not God, that is the end of the silver droid. <laughs> but in the biblical story, God is always in the business of retrieving the droid who turns right. God is always weaving those threads of the story back into the great tapestry of the story. And so we find at the very heart of the Genesis story, Abraham, who walks remarkably, more or less, in a straight line, more or less, and Jacob, who absolutely does not. But both of their stories are important. And God is deeply involved in both. And so, Scripture, we find, speaks to us not in monotones, but in a polyphonous manner, addressing us in all of our various conditions of life and summoning us to walk in God's ways in pursuit of the promise. It's not a one-shoe-fits-all kind of scenario, right? The variety of God's ways of dealing with people is one of the most remarkable and, and fantastic parts of the Old Testament story. Somewhere, everyone finds themselves in this story. Let's think of a few aspects of this story that I hope will bring out something of, of, of how it works. Uh, Genesis 25, first of all, tells the story of Jacob's birth along with his twin brother Esau. It's here that Jacob receives his name. Uh, what he's called, you may remember, becomes a big deal in the wrestling match that we read about at the end of, towards the end of the story. So Jacob receives his name here. The name in Hebrew is Yaakov. It's connected with the Hebrew word akev that means a heel. And you remember he's called that because he comes out grasping his brother's heel. Yes, that's the, the first point of contact. But the name becomes important in the story in other ways because it defines fundamentally who Jacob is as to his character. Because there's another Hebrew word, akev. It looks just the same, you'll see on the screen, really. And that is related to the Hebrew word that means to cheat. The name Jacob carries both of those connotations. And that's important because Jacob in the whole story of Jacob is fundamentally a person who cheats. That's who he is. Later in the story, Esau makes precisely this point. Jacob has cheated him twice. He says, he takes Esau's birthright, and he also takes his blessing. So, this is the person carrying the promise of God at the moment in this story. Jacob, the cheat, that's who is the, at the center of God's plan. Talk about a fragile promise. The whole reality of cheating dominates the first part of the Jacob story. It's cheating that leads him to flee from the promised land, afraid of Esau's anger. So he moves abroad, stays for a long time in a foreign land with his mother's family so as to avoid his brother's revenge. Another of these many journeys that we have in the book of Genesis. God, we discover, is the one, eventually we discover, God is the one moving Jacob on 
so that God can meet him on the journey and change him. But once again, we only discover that later. At the beginning of the story, it just looks like a set of bad choices. That's all it is. At one level, that's all it is. A set of really bad choices. But God weaves all of those bad choices into the whole tapestry of the story. Later in the story, as we saw, Jacob receives a different name. Israel, Yisrael. God struggles or uh, struggling with God. That name doesn't tell us about Jacob's character at all. That name tells us about Jacob's role as the chosen one, the father of the people who will become known as uh, Israel. And so the entire Jacob story is designed to answer two questions, I think. How can the cheating Jacob possibly become the father of God's people? How is that even possible? And second, how can Jacob truly inherit the promise made to Abraham when he's not even in the land? He's left. He's gone back in the direction of Mesopotamia. So, just to put some uh, flesh around those bones. Chapter 25, Jacob's unsaintliness is first revealed. You remember the story? Fatigue and hunger lead Esau to trade his birthright to Jacob for some food. The story has barely opened. Esau cedes to Jacob his inheritance rights as the firstborn, the right to receive twice as much property from the father as all the other brothers. Esau spurns this birthright, so he doesn't come out of this well. That's not a, an acceptable thing to do. But Jacob's behavior is not exactly exemplary either. The hand that grasped at Esau's heel in Rebekah's womb now proves itself to be the hand of a character that grasps. The grasping idea is a bigger idea, and that doesn't exactly fit the notion of God's people that we have been forming. Abraham made mistakes, but by and large, both he and Isaac were people of pretty good character, right? By and large. We don't anticipate that the next person in line is going to be somebody of rather dubious character. So he's a devious guy. Chapter 27, his deviousness shows up again. Rebecca prompts Jacob to deceive Isaac into bestowing the patriarchal blessing on Jacob instead of Esau. So this is not a question about property rights any longer. This is a question of who gets to be top son in the hierarchy overall. It's a slightly different question. Rebecca commands Jacob into a plan of action. Very strong verb. Not normally used of women in the Old Testament because it was not culturally appropriate for women to command back in those times. But the verb is used here just to indicate the strength of Rebecca's character. Uh, so Rebecca really exerts all the maternal authority she can muster to get Jacob to play along. Jacob complies. It's not that he's worried morally about it. He's just scared of getting caught. Uh, he overcomes his fears. Um, his own character in the midst of this is alluded to in his own physical self-description. And I mentioned this briefly yesterday. Esau, Jacob says, is a hairy man and I am a smooth man. That's a problem. How is my father going to be fooled? So at one level, that's a physical description. But elsewhere in the Old Testament, that adjective smooth refers to deceptive speech. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth, a smooth mouth, works ruin. So you can see how if you have the vocab that vocabulary to a Hebrew reader is going to evoke a range of possibilities. It's getting the idea of deception even into this physical self-description. He's a slippery guy. He's a smooth talker. And as such, he goes in and he tries to fool his father who is blind at this point. It works eventually, although it's a bit dodgy for a while. The father eats his favorite meal. He confers the blessing. 
Esau shows up, it's too late, the blessing's already Jacob's, and for the second time, the cheater wins. That's not fair, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I just want to point out, this is God's world and God is just, and, and, and so these things are all true, but this is not fair. So what's, going, this is, uh, what's happening here? You can imagine Esau asking that question, right? I thought the God of our fathers was you know, just. How is Jacob able to get away with this? Well, it's not clear yet what's going on, I think, in that respect. But anyway, these two infamous events, which reflect so poorly on Jacob's character, lead him into exile. Esau is furious. Rebekah, again, arranges Jacob's departure, where he can stay with her brother Laban. It's Rebekah's last appearance in the book of Genesis. It's a fairly ignominious way to exit. Her single significant action has been to engineer a massive fraud. It's not what you would want on your epitaph, you know, on your tombstone. She's a cheat. Her son Jacob is a cheat. Her brother Laban turns out to be a cheat. It's a family business. Cheating Incorporated. And this reality is captured in the biblical story in the term Aramean, which refers to Rebecca's side of the family, who most of whom continued to live up in the north in the area of the Arameans, Aram, ancient Syria. Will Jacob follow the same Aramean path right to the end? That's possible. He's left the promised land. It's perfectly possible. He'll just merge straight back in. And Deuteronomy 26 verse 5 describes Jacob as an Aramean given up for lost, which I think is very interesting. An Aramean given up for lost, a wandering Aramean. That's who Jacob is at this point. He's wandering, he's lost, he's on the move, but apparently he's going nowhere. What a family! Not sure you'd want any of them in your church. Uh, this goes back to our conversation with Laura last evening. If you did have them in your church, you'd, you've got to know they're bringing baggage. Right? Most of it acquired by dubious means, probably, as well. Um, your resources would be seriously stretched by this family. Rebecca would bring serious control issues. Esau would bring anger and resentment. You'd have to watch Jacob very closely when the collection plate was going around. <laughs> Isaac, well, poor old Isaac, he would just need a lot of looking after generally. Um, surely these are not the people that God is using in the building of his kingdom. Please tell me that's not true. Surely... If Jacob in particular is moving anywhere in this story, it is away from God, away from the chosen people of God, and away from a useful life lived for God. So it seems. If Moses later in the story is God's spokesman, and if Elijah is God's messenger, then as we might have said in Glasgow in my upbringing, Jacob is God's rat bag. It's a great word. I commend it to you, rat bag. It's not really rude, and it's not really polite. It's in that lovely gray zone. Uh, but the crucial point here is that Jacob remains God's rat bag. And God remains God, and God retains his firm intention to bless. And so it turns out, that the movement of Jacob away from God is actually a movement of Jacob toward God. It's an amazing paradox, and thank God for it. The exile that Jacob enters as he leaves the promised land turns out to be the crucible in which new faith and life are forged. That's just how God is in biblical faith. Always turning dysfunction and evil toward the good nudging things toward the good. And so we find in Genesis 28 a very brief but pivotal story in the Jacob narrative. No matter what Rebekah thinks is going on or what Jacob thinks is going on or even Esau, God has his own thoughts about what's going on. 
In a famous passage, uh, you know it well, I think, we find that Jacob sleeps near the town that will later be named Beth-El. So he goes from Beersheba to Beth-El. As he sleeps, uh, he dreams of a stairway between earth and heaven. Probably we're to think of something like an ancient Babylonian ziggurat, which was conceived of as a stairway between the heavens and the earth, down which the gods would come to their temples. So it's a symbol of accessibility to the divine realm. God, we're told, is in this dream. Where he's standing in the dream has been a matter of debate. But most likely, I think, we're to see God as standing beside Jacob, not at the top looking down, but beside him at the foot. Very intimate picture. Before there is even repentance for sin, before there is the least sign of virtue, before there is even the faintest notion in Jacob's mind that his journey lies in the hands of God, before all of that, God is found where Jacob is. It's a marvelous picture. And as God stands there with Jacob, he gives him a remarkable promise. It's a promise of land. It's a promise of innumerable offspring. It's a promise of God's presence with Jacob to protect him and to return him to the promised land. So God reveals himself to Jacob as the same God who has spoken to the ancestors, in fact. And he confirms to this really dysfunctional person, Jacob, that he too is part of the missional people of God. The promises first made to Abraham as he's settling in the land are repeated to Jacob as he's anxious to get out of the land. Whatever happens, God says, I will be with you. It's a remarkable story. The journey is part of the journey that God is taking Jacob on. And Jacob kind of responds. If we're reading Jacob's uh, progress here, I think we'd have to say, well, it's a bit of progress, but it's not much. He recognizes something amazing has happened. He calls the place Bethel. He builds a, a sacred pillar, you may remember. It's got Jacob's first encounter with God in the story. It's a kind of conversion, and it is marked by an impressive-sounding vow. If God will be with me and will watch over me in this journey, and then a number of things follow on. Well, that's all very well and good. A vow is a vow. It's a rather impressive in its own way, but actually it's a rather interesting vow when you compare it to the promise. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Um, for one thing, it's a conditional vow. <laughs> you might have thought, confronted by the Almighty God, you would just do the here I am thing. But not Jacob. If, if God will be with me, then I will do such and such. And in repeating the promise that God has made, you will notice that Jacob leaves out any reference to the land, to descendants, and all of that, any reference to the blessing of all the families of the earth. In fact, he leaves out all the essential elements of the patriarchal promise. He's very just concerned about his own well-being. If God will do this and give me food and clothes to wear, well, I'll kind of go along with it. It's not really a very inspiring response. He's not really buying into the program. He's not really getting the point. In fact, he is, in fact, doing a deal. He's still a smooth man. Um, it's a bargain. It's not a commitment. But at least he's met with God, so that's a start. These are the last words spoken by Jacob in the land of Canaan. It takes him 20 years to return. It's a long time, but God is a patient waiter, as we've seen. While he's waiting, Jacob learns a whole bunch of life lessons. Learning environment number one, he gets married. Uh, well, exactly. Marriage is a pretty challenging experience for most people, even under the best of circumstances, and I think we would not say that Jacob's circumstances were the best of circumstances. He works for seven years, so he may marry Rachel. When the time is up, Laban substitutes Rachel for Leah. It's a deception that Jacob does not discover till the morning after the wedding night, which has always suggested to me he's not particularly bright. 
Um, more seriously, being a cheater himself, he does not expect to get cheated. Quite interesting. He protests hilariously at this treatment, just like Cain, you know. Uh, Laban pleads local custom and offers to give him Rachel along with Leah in exchange for another seven years of work. So Jacob ends up with two wives, and uh, each of these wives has a maid, a slave. So he turns out to be pretty badly outnumbered, and the family life is not, is not a healthy one, as the story goes on, in fact. There's an ironic appropriateness to Laban's deception of Jacob. That's learning environment number two, hanging out with your cheating uncle for 20 years. The deceiver is deceived. And now maybe Jacob realizes the full meaning of Laban's greeting to him in Genesis 29. Uh, you may remember, uh, Laban greets him by saying, you are my own flesh and blood. Yes, indeed you are. You're certainly a member of this family, Jacob. <laughs> So we have a school of hard knocks going on. Here's what Jacob learns. I've been with you for 20 years now, he tells Laban in Genesis 31, and I have treated you justly, but you have treated me very badly. That's a rather different way of looking at the world, right? If the God of my father had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed, but God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. So now we're getting some better theology in the story, right? Now we have Jacob having learned, it seems, some lessons about reality. In exile, the slippery man has been learning how to be just, how to be righteous. He has been the victim of trickery, not its instigator. And this apparently has been a pretty salutary lesson. God has been with him through these years. He recognizes now. Very different from the Jacob at the beginning of the story. So Jacob has been changing. God has been changing him. But a further change is needed as Jacob heads back to the promised land. And so we come to that very famous, well-known story of the wrestling match at the Yabok River. During the night on the northern bank of this river, Jacob encounters an unexpected adversary. A man, we are told, wrestled with him till daybreak. The verb there, our English word wrestled being the translation of it, that verb is carefully chosen. It's the Hebrew verb yaveavek, which is very similar to the name Jacob again. Right? In fact, uh, one commentator, recognizing the transformational aspect of this whole story, and the way that Jacob learns to be a new person has actually suggested that we might translate it, a man Jacobed him till daybreak, just to bring that out. The identity of the man is unclear at the beginning. Who is it? It's uh, obscure to Jacob. It's obscure initially to us. Jacob is wrestling in the dark, you remember. It's nighttime. So he doesn't really know what's going on. We don't really know what's going on at the beginning. But as the story unfolds, we develop the idea that God is present in this wrestling somehow. Even at the beginning, we're given a bit of a clue that this is not a normal wrestling match because Jacob at this point is said to be 97 years old. And yet his opponent, we are told, was not able to overpower him initially, which seems strange. And, and it raises a question that becomes a bit paradoxical in a moment. This is not an ordinary wrestling match. It's not an ordinary physical fight. The opponent actually is able to damage Jacob physically precisely when he wants to do it. So what does this mean? He could not overpower him. This is paradoxical language. So in the physical struggle, we begin to discern other stuff is going on. And Jacob, we are told, will not yield which is just about typical for Jacob. He will not yield. The injury he receives does seemingly alert him, though, to the identity of his opponent. And Jacob asks his opponent for a blessing. 
which is sadly predictable, actually. Um, Jacob in this story is a person obsessed with getting blessings, is he not? So he, ha he hasn't changed that much. This whole story of his life, you could say that Jacob is addicted to blessings, actually, in this story. But now in this passage, he's not dealing with a brother whose judgment is clouded by hunger. In this passage, he's not dealing with a father whose eyesight has failed. In this passage, he meets his match. This is a very shrewd opponent. And this blesser, this person with capacity to give him something, he wants more than food in return. This person wants a name. I will not let you go unless you bless me. Very well, what is your name? And he wants the blessing badly enough, just like Esau, that he actually gives in. Jacob is the name that evokes all the cheating. The change of name evokes his vocation. No longer Jacob, but Yisrael, Israel. That's what he needs before he goes back to the promised land to do the missional work of God. That's the final change. This is all about Jacob learning that God is God and Jacob is not. It's for God to frame the destiny of a mortal being it is for God to name us in that sense. Frail human beings are not in control of their own fate. We live under the sovereignty of God who cares enough, thankfully, to wrestle with us. That's really what this story, I think, is about. And the funny thing is how this, this question of winning is handled. Who overcomes whom and who wins? It's all very obscure. Uh, you have struggled with God and you have overcome in what sense has Jacob overcome? Hasn't he lost? Here's what one commentator says, and we're almost done with this. Jacob's persistence has brought him success in his dealings with people, and now it is responsible for success in his struggle with God, not because God has surrendered, but because Jacob has conceded. As always with God, one has to lose in order to win. I think that's, that gets at the, the mystery of, of the way this wrestling match ends. And so we move to the close. Esau and Jacob reconcile. The remainder of Jacob's story is not always a happy one, but it's a very, very different Jacob who inhabits the story. God loves the droid who turns right. God loves Jacob He's not somebody whose curriculum vitae would have recommended him to most of us for the work of God's kingdom. But God's plan is achieved, nevertheless, in Jacob's own life, in the life of his family, which is crucial to God's purposes to bless the world. And so we learn that God loves the world even in the midst of sin and dysfunction. That is a message I think we need to hear. That's a message other people need to hear. I commend to you the preaching of Genesis 12 through 50. It's fantastic stuff. Amen.